uh, hi everybody, and even if you don't have a body, material and immaterial entities, welcome today on the Integral Stage Author Series. I'm Layman Pascal, and I'm sitting down with synoptic, esoteric scholar, tantric practitioner, and potentially legendary podcast host, Greg Kaminsky, to discuss his still pretty new book, Proneos which uh, digs into the depths of some of the most basic and ongoingly essential Dharma practices. We originally had this conversation scheduled for a while back, so we're glad to have him here with us now. Hi, Greg. Hello, Layman's. Great to be with you again. Usually I start book interviews by asking where the book can be purchased and what the inception of the idea was. And, and we still should focus on that, but I thought in this case, uh, I might give you the opportunity to uh, praise your guru and set a context for the discussion that aligns us with whatever lineage you're working in. Okay, thank you. Um, so yeah, my teacher is Tractung Rinpoche or Tractung Kepa, and um, he is an American-born teacher of Vajrayana Buddhism, among other things. And I've been studying with him for about four years now. And I was drawn to this school primarily because it, the teacher, I'd been looking for someone who basically understood reality in a way that made sense and could explain it and teach other people how to embody that knowing. And he's the only person I've met in the course of looking for, I don't know, close to 20 years who could actually fulfill that. And um, so I didn't go looking for a Buddhist teacher. I want to be clear on that. I, I came to this because that's what he teaches and not because I was looking to, you know, for a certain set of qualities or characteristics or activities um, is really just more about look, fundamental questions. So that's how I ended up in this situation, I guess. Um, so the book is called Proneus, and it's all about looking at the preliminary practices of Buddhist Tantra from a Western perspective, because we're Westerners and we, English is our native language. Our culture is different than that of Asia. And I think it's helpful, at least for me, and I think from other people I've spoken to, to have an explanation of view and methods and how these things function in one's life in a way that is familiar and understandable and doesn't immediately require you to break out a dictionary and start learning the like a foreign culture just so you can assimilate ideas which should already be familiar to us so that that's really the purpose behind the book and that was why i was instructed to write it is it just available on Amazon or is there some other place people should get it or? Yeah, it's available on Amazon as a paperback and a Kindle book. 
and um, it will soon be available in some other venues, including uh, directly from Anathema Publishing Limited, who uh, one of my friends who helped design the cover for the book. Uh, what what does the title mean? Is it an acronym or a hidden spell, or does it name an ancient deity? What what is Proneos? Well, Proneos is an ancient Greek word and it's the term for the porch or portico of the temple so after you've gone up the steps and past the pillars but before you pass through the doorway into the into the actual temple space there's this sort of porch and to me that's exactly what the preliminary practices of vajrayana are there's sort of this porch before you actually enter into formal practice and it's not that these practices are in any way lower or lesser although people sometimes act as if they are what they are is they're foundational so they're really required in order to be able to enter and then practice the more advanced levels of tantra including the generation and completion phases so it's it's a learning process and these are the fundamental skills one has to learn in order to be a tantric practitioner in that sense so that's why the name praneus and again i was trying to connect it with sort of the western classical tradition it's very charming, the idea of a wisdom porch. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in a way, it's a real thing. I mean, both physically and conceptually. As you've spent some time working with these practices, have you found that your appreciation of the foundational practices has gotten stronger and stronger? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I like, can't really stress you, you were mentioning I don't want to cut you off there but th this sort of division between the way people think of preliminary as being either the first thing that you move on from because it's simple or is the most basic thing that underlies the system and it seems to me you don't really know that difference until you've been in it for a while and you keep uh, rediscovering the depth of the original procedures to the point where it seems like oh that's that's really what it was they weren't just giving me an introductory chapter that was the whole thing up front <laughs> yeah that's it it's kind of deceptive in that way because our probably typical opinions would lead us to believe <clears throat> it's something to speed through get past so you can get to the real work but you do you're right you do discover that the skills you're developing and learning are the same skills you'll be using later on. And it's just like really learning anything. Like I remember learning math when I was a child. Like if you didn't learn addition, you weren't going to be able to do subtraction. And if you didn't learn addition and subtraction, good luck with multiplication and division. Everything like builds upon itself so in order to reach the heights of spiritual practice you've got to be able to embody the foundational practices and view um, otherwise you're 
again, it's like building your your house on sand. So you have to, like Jesus said, you know, build your house on bedrock. And the way to do that is by engaging with these foundational, what could be considered basic practices with genuine, authentic devotion and real attention and focus. And it can make a big difference. There are individuals historically who have attained self-realization simply through doing the preliminary practices. And it should also be understood that even the highest realizers did these sets of preliminary practices many times throughout their life and never actually stopped. So you would do one set of preliminary practices, you might move on to an advanced level of practice, but you're still might do these foundational practices and accumulations throughout your life because they they have great power. Um, they have the ability for us to gain much more understanding about ourselves and the world. And, and I find just like most days, I have to remind myself again that I'm a student that I need to be humble because I don't know and I'm not really fully capable. And so with that attitude comes the desire to re-examine the foundations and reinforce those as I try to move forward. So I think that these are crucial. And I also am aware that a lot of practitioners don't emphasize it as much as I might be right now. I've heard that people sometimes skip these practices altogether, or that they try to do them, but it takes so long that they lose any real benefit of them. Because really, this is supposed to be an incredibly intense experience where you actually have to sacrifice in order to do it. And, and the only reason I was able to succeed at it is because I had help from my teacher. And I had the attitude that I wanted to do this. And if, and if it, like if I was literally like, if I have to die trying to finish this, I'm going to give it that level of effort. Now it doesn't actually require anyone to die to do it. It actually requires you to live to do it, but that's a lot of work and it, it's a tremendous amount of work and being confronted with the number of accumulations required is stressful and often discouraging and frustrating, but it really teaches you that in order to succeed at anything, you really have to be patient. You have to be persistent. You have to persevere through obstacles and hindrances. And you have to have faith that it's doing what it's supposed to do. And that you wouldn't have been instructed to do it and empowered to do it if, if the teacher thought you weren't really capable of doing it. So 
there's, it teaches, if you succeed at it, it teaches you a lot. Because ultimately, I think these practices teach you how to do things, how to actually accomplish. Because despite all of the instructions and all of the teachings, in, and including my book, which tries to lay out these practices and how to do them, only the practitioner themselves can learn how to do it on their own in the moment. Because all the instructions and the lessons and the teachings will only get you so far. But as an individual, you're the one who actually has to do it. And that requires learning how to overcome yourself and all of the excuses, rationalizations, um, fears, and, you know, multitude of uh, seemingly legitimate reasons why you don't need to or shouldn't do it. And um, those come up all constantly. And so it's not so much about becoming someone we're not. It's, it's really more about learning who we are and learning that we're much more capable than we imagine ourselves to be. You mentioned a couple of um, qualities there, faith and uh, perseverance. Uh, I'm assuming all y'all, you must, you've got to be ready to face yourself and <laughs> experience self-struggle and things like that. Uh, what are the other, you know, sorts of uh, pre-preliminary skills or mindset that you need in order to be successful at these basic practices? Well, I think it's crucial that someone have a burning, unquenchable desire to know the truth of reality. Um, this path and, and spiritual paths, generally speaking, are not places where people find um, comfort and a reinforcement of their identity, or at least they shouldn't be places where that is occurring. So it's difficult, it's challenging. And for somebody who doesn't have a burning desire to know the truth of reality of who am I? What is this place? Why are we here? You'd have to question, you know, what's your motivation for, for wanting to do it? Because for me, like those questions are my motivation. But I know that people come to spiritual life with a wide variety of things that they're looking for. But I would say if you are not desperately seeking answers to these fundamental questions of life, then you may not need a spiritual path. Because to me, that, that's what the spiritual path is, at least for me. And then I think there's other aspects to it that are often overlooked or 
not considered deeply enough. Like one of the main motivations for spirituality is the desire to be a good person. But not everyone has that desire. Um, so the spiritual path is not really about looking at, at ourselves and seeing how good we are and like relishing in that. Instead, it's more about seeing all the ways we're deficient and that we could improve and then working to make those changes a reality. So the spiritual path is really for people who not only want to become better people, but also for people who are tired of self-concern and would rather care about others instead. So there's, there, those are two really crucial aspects, I think, before anyone arrives at any kind of spiritual path is a recognition that you want to be good and you know you can be better than you are. And then there's this desire that, that I, I don't just want to be concerned for myself. That is an, an empty hole that I can never fill. But caring about others can take many forms and often leaves us feeling fulfilled. Is the more we give away and work for the benefit of others, the more full we are of joy, of life, of love, of vitality. So it's counterintuitive in some sort of way, but that's really the crux of it, I think. Do you um, feel more full? Uh, what, what have you gained from these practices? Well, I've gained a lot of understanding of myself and of this world we live in. Um, I've become more tenderhearted towards myself and other people and other beings. I have become much more capable in terms of doing work and accomplishing tasks. I feel more alive and more joyful. So there's a lot of benefits, but it's a lot of hard work. I mean, those things come at a price, right? All, you know, to be joyful is not something you just stumble into. I mean, it would, you could, and it would be great if we all did, but I find for myself, joyfulness comes through hard work. So, yeah, so life without work is kind of a, a fantasy, I think, that we all would like to entertain, but it's not real. And so... I feel like I have gained a lot, but I've, but everything I've gained, I've worked very hard for. Maybe give us um, an overview of what these practices are that you cover in the book. Sure. So there's four main practices. The first would be refuge, 
And the way that refuge is practiced is through doing prostrations. These are like full body prostrations. And um, there's some associated prayers that we say while we're doing it. And the idea is um, with these practices that you have to accumulate 111,111 accumulations of each of the practices. And so the first is refuge. We do prostrations. Um, we try to work up to doing at least 500 per session. And it seems tremendously difficult physically. And I remember finishing that practice and being like, oh boy, I'm glad I'm done. The next one should be, you know, and compared to that, it should be fine. And then the next practice is purification, which is done by uh, doing a visualization of Vajrasattva as one of the tantric deities, and then counting this mantra of Vajrasattva, which is a 100-syllable mantra. And so when I started doing that, I quickly discovered that, that the refuge practice of prostrations was actually as difficult as it seemed was actually easier than the purification practice. And then the third practice is mandala practice, which involves uh, giving away of everything uh, in an act of devotion. And again, to do that more than a hundred thousand times, I found again, that to be even more difficult than the purification and then the final practice is called Guru Yoga, and that's a six-day retreat where you do a set of visualizations and mantra practice again over 100,000 times. And um, the idea with Guru Yoga is if, if you've done all the practices properly and you do the retreat correctly, you will have what is referred to as a tongue-tip taste of enlightenment or self-realization or gnosis, um, the non-dual state, which means that perceiving is going on, but there's no perceiver and no thing perceived. I don't think I could really explain that, but if you've experienced it, you know what I mean. And so that leaves you with the understanding that not you haven't actually finished anything at that point. What it means is you then are about to enter into the actual practices because now you know what's involved and what it's really about. Prior to that, you might not have really understood what you were aiming towards because if you haven't had that non-experience, with air quotes, um, you can't really understand what you're doing and where it's going. But once you do, then it becomes clear that you actually, there's actually a lot more work that this was only just to get you started. And then you can enter into the more advanced levels of the practice of generation phase and the benefits of doing this are probably beyond my ability to communicate because it, it changes your entire reference point.
and it leaves you with understandings that you cannot, you can't unsee or unknow. And so it has a effect of, I wouldn't say totally transforming a person, but it, it, it's, it's like, I don't know what you'd say, like lighting a fire, you know, or like that example of people talk about if like a spark gets into a bale of cotton and it like just consumes it from the inside out, but it takes time, you know, that, that thing is smoldering away and burning away. And that's kind of what it feels like when you get through these preliminary practices, you realize like the spark's been lit, like it might, it might happen in a month, it might happen in a year, it might happen, you know, next lifetime, but like you're on a trajectory at that point and you can't really pretend that you don't know or understand what is really going on. These practices, I'm sure they must strike a lot of people today as very extreme with all this effort as almost the opposite of their assumptions about spirituality. And I'm curious whether you think part of this, uh, let's say, old-fashioned approach to doing it is that you have to build up a certain amount of quote-unquote will in order to be capable of the path, and that these are like will-building exercises to some extent. I can somewhat see that. Like, that's not incorrect. I think that's on one level, that's very true. But on another level, like I wouldn't really use the word will because at some point through the process, I realized that my efforts and my will were not the thing that was really getting it done. If it was just up to me and my will, I never would have actually finished this. I would have given up and walked away and been like, okay, this is crazy. And I can't really understand what the benefit is. At some point, you kind of, the will doesn't go away, but it, it's, it's supplemented with uh, faith and with devotion to the path, to the teacher, to the practice, to ourselves. And what we're trying to do and it's really this submission this quality of giving in and turning yourself over to it that actually makes it work and again it seems kind of counterintuitive because you are really you are building up your capabilities your will the sort of ability to take a concept, an idea, and then to make it into reality, to get it done. And you do learn that, and that is part of it. But really, you also learn that in, in order to be successful, there also has to be faith and devotion and a submission to the moment, to the work, to make that happen. And so I think To me, it's really broadened and deepened my understanding of what will is, because now to me, will is not like a self-driving like impetus. 
it's it's something that is combined with faith and devotion and a submission to the way things actually are that that makes it all function i don't know if that makes sense but yeah um what i hear in that is that it's it's like becoming a conductor of capacity rather than just a generator of effects and that conductivity is like i'm trying imagining the filament you know or like a piece of metal that's conducting capacity but yes. when, you zoom, when you zoom in on it it's actually made of a bunch of threads that are bound together and one of them might be called will and one of them might be called submission etc cetera, etc cetera. but yeah, having them all together allows them to be conductive yeah that's a good great analogy and it's also correct in that the conductivity of it it's flowing there's no obstruction there's no resistance and that is exactly the sort of attitude and disposition that's required to do these practices and to be successful in life really is a lack of resistance to what is they say uh in zen the great way is easy for those who have no preferences and that's kind of what we're trying to work towards obviously everyone who's a human being has preferences we can't pretend that we don't but we can recognize that it is our preferences that are the problem ultimately because reality is the way it is and our preferences often say i wish it wasn't that way i wish it was the way i wanted it to be but you have to you have to submit to the way things actually are in order to sort of go with that flow to enter that stream and um that does require a level of faith and devotion and submission because one doesn't become liberated in the sense of gnosis really you're liberated liberation is from the the individual self not of the individual self and so that submission ultimately is a you could call it a reframing of perspective from the individual to the totality like uh, my teacher always talks about how a human being fully realized is an a finite infinitude they encompass the finite as the human body mind and the infinite as as reality itself and there's no contradiction or like it's a seeming paradox but in your in that state it there's no paradox whatsoever what if anything has writing this book done for you is there was there a deepening of understanding for you in terms of organizing the material to communicate it yeah definitely a deepening of an understanding i mean I, I don't know if i said this last time we talked but 
one of my teachers a long time ago told me about if if you have ideas but you don't write them out they're they're not complete they're only half completed only once you write out your thoughts are they fully complete and that is true and so i found that doing these practices and then writing about them was the thing that sealed it in me made it part of me that i can now embody this that may not be necessary for everybody but for me definitely is because that's just how my mind works and the act of writing requires for me such a deep contemplation of the subject that i completely lose myself in it and new understandings and insights and revelations are continuously manifesting and so my understanding of these preliminary practices now is 100 times greater than it was after i finished them and i also know and understand that my my level of understanding could go 100 times greater than it is right now if i keep practicing keep contemplating keep investigating and learning and testing because there's there's no end to reality i mean we say the divine is without limit right and that is true it's without limit what's your approach to reading you know what would you say to someone reading this book what's um do you have any thoughts on how to better assimilate ideas particularly ideas connected with let's say the path definitely yeah um when one is reading one should read with an active mind not a passive mind you should never read and just take in the information without analyzing what's being said questioning it looking at the tone the vocabulary and word choice uh trying to figure out what's being said and why it's being said whenever you read you should always read with that active mind that's questioning that maybe skeptical or doubting even what is written so you can learn it the way to really learn it is to test it yourself and then you can know if it's true otherwise it's just words on a page and words can be good but they can be bad and they can be misleading and so i would always say definitely read with an active mind question what's being said test it out for yourself and then you can know it in a lot of discussions that i hear people tend to have vajrayana and tantra overlap each other in their meaning a little bit tantra is a, a notoriously elusive <laughs> word that some people find misleading i tend to think of it myself as like the living element of the dharma being being extended or woven into the full spectrum of the rest of life what do you think of when you think of tantra and what what distinguishes a tantric from a non-tantric version of a practice 
So my understanding is that the word Tantra refers to, like you mentioned this term weaving, uh, or I've heard it referred to as a continuous thread of wisdom, bliss, that's incorporated into practice. Um, this is a tricky area because essentially Tantra, what it is, does is the practices, the methods of Tantra, one of the primary effects is to generate states of bliss within the practitioner. And this is important, not because bliss is what is being sought or the end result or the goal, it is not. However, we are taught in the tradition I practice that the only remedy for beings suffering is bliss. And so that's what we pursue. We, we do these practices. We bathe our body minds in this Gnostic intoxication, if you will. And that feeling pervades and affects the practitioner to such a degree that it brings about joy, uh, tenderheartedness, compassion, um, and changes someone over time from a, you know, coarseness to a subtlety that it could only really be understood by someone who's, who is doing it. So to me, that's really what Tantra is about. It's about meditative practices that induce a state of Gnostic intoxication. This doesn't have to require any other person. And there are a wide variety of methods to sort of make this sort of occur. But I, I have to be clear that it's not like we're in control, like we're not doling out bliss to ourselves. Like you could do the practice and you may not feel it one day or you, or another day you do it and it's overwhelming. Like it, it's, it's, it's like a gift or a blessing from the divine. So we don't control it. Um, we seek it because that's the path. It's not the goal of the path. The goal is to obtain realization for the benefit of ourselves and all beings. But this is the path to attain that non-duality. And so Tantra is a view of reality that we try to embody. And then it is methods that allow us to eventually realize that view. There is some overlap in terms of Vajrayana and Tantra. Vajrayana can be divided up into nine yanas or levels of practice. Tantra, I believe, encompasses some of these levels, not the lowest, like sutra or but and not the highest necessarily like dzogchen but in between yes most a lot of the vajrayana levels of practice are tantric practices and 
I know that there's a lot of confusion and errant conceptuality about Tantra and what it is and what it involves. And a lot of people have, you know, sort of titillating fantasies with, you know, sexual fantasies about what Tantra is. There are sexual practices in Tantra, but most are not. Most are solitary individual practices where you're doing visualization, repeating a mantra. And it's pretty extraordinary, I think, having experienced it, done it. It, it doesn't really make any kind of rational sense <clears throat> because for most people, these this sort of Gnostic intoxication or bliss state doesn't make sense because there's no hangover. Uh, you don't get dull or act in foolish ways. There's no like physical effects that are negative. Um, you feel more alive and joyful and responsive to life so i think it's it might be a shock to some people but i think that that is at the crux of it to me listening to that brings up for me a sense of in so many articulations of the path there's a kind of i don't quite want to call it attention but a sense that there's a developmental accumulation through effort on one on the one side, but on the other side, um, access to something that utterly goes beyond time and becoming an effort. And all you need to do is be in any moment perfectly submitted to the non-dual existential satisfaction. How do you how do you hold those together? You know, the the developmental accumulation and another part that says. Yeah, there really is no developmental accumulation because what you need is just a fundamental shift of context. Both of those can be true simultaneously without conf any conflict, I, I think. Like we have a tendency because our minds are dualistic to make it an either or or a but in this case, I think it's a both and like this, these are both valid. And this is honestly what makes like a sudden enlightenment experience even possible, right? Otherwise, if it was just, you know, you have to work through it developmentally and there would never be instances of people attaining sudden realization before they were supposed to have been able to do it, right? So both of these can be true and we have to kind of accept that we do need to work over time to develop and grow as humans and that it is possible in any given moment to become fully aware of the totality and experience that it, the thing is, though, those moments 
don't usually last. They're not stable. The way to make those moments of realization last and be stable is through the long-term developmental process. So they do function together synergistically in that way. Nice. I'm imagining someone, and I don't know if I've ever heard this expressed to me or not, or whether I just made it up, but I'm imagining someone who's ethically concerned about a radical shift of context in which the perceiving remains and the perceiver and the things are gone. That a person might say, doesn't that risk not fully valuing individual others? You know, does it risk not honoring the completeness of objects and things? Am I taking something away from my regard for the existence of people and things by entering into a space where it is almost as if they don't exist? Well, I guess the first thing you have to look at when we're talking about Vajrayana and Buddhist Tantra is there is a view that precedes any of the methods of practice and so this is a view of reality that we try to hold because it is the view of reality that's realized by enlightened beings. So what is that view? Well, that view is all is divinity. There are no beings. <laughs> there are no things. And so if we take that as our basis, then we, we have to try to understand why is reality that way instead of the way I see it, right? So one, one way to sort of approach this is like, what is the experience of the enlightened being versus the experience of the non-enlightened being? So the non-enlightened being like me, I experience duality, like I'm a subject in a world of objects. There are beings everywhere like me in a world of things. And what's my experience of that? Well, alienation, uh, fear, struggle, constant strategizing, about how to survive or thrive or prosper or not fall into any number of disasters. And what's the experience of the enlightened being living from the view that all is divinity, there are no things and no beings. Well, they exist in, in what you might call a paradise. There's no fear, there's no alienation, there's no struggle. There's no strategizing. So to me, who's not living that sort of existence, it sounds like the answer to all my problems. So we take the view of the enlightened beings as the basis for what reality actually is. And then what we discover through the methods of practice is that that is a true and accurate view of reality that's far more accurate than ours, which doesn't really work. 
And what I've discovered is that it's not that I discount beings or things and don't appreciate them. I actually appreciate them much more because I think I see them now more for what they are than what I believed them to be, right? There's not just other people walking around. These are embodiments of pure divinity walking around. These aren't just things. This is presentation of the divine. And that there's no discontinuity between the grass, the tree, the shrub, the wall, the carpet, the chair, and me. This is, there's no discontinuity. These are all part of a single whole. And so, to me, in that state, everything is more meaningful because it has ultimate meaning and ultimate value, whereas in reality, like, the only way it can have that sort of ultimate meaning and value as divinity is if it has no inherent thingness or selfness to it at all. So, again, counterintuitively, it might seem like it would become like, well, it's just things, that nothing means anything, it, it's, it's worthless, so I just pay no attention and treat it badly. But in reality, when you take away the beingness and the thingness, everything is holy and pure and meaningful. And it, it transforms your vision from, you know, the everyday typical human vision into divine Gnostic vision. I don't know if that makes sense, but that that's been my experience. Well, that's I think that makes a lot of sense, at least to me, and I hope to some of the people who are listening. When I read the book, there were a couple of phrases that stayed with me. One of them was this notion of merit on the path. And the other one was uh, a statement you made that the path is holographic. So I wonder if you could say a couple of words about each of those concepts. Yeah, so the holographic nature really, what I've been taught and definitely discovered is you could take any teaching on any particular area of the path, and if you explored it fully and expansively, it would lead you to every other teaching and every other realization because reality itself is not fragmented. And so the Dharma, the teachings about reality are also not fragmented because you can't teach it if it doesn't, if it's not the same thing. So I guess that's kind of the crux of it is the, the Dharma teachings, it is about how it is so and the teachings themselves as i guess as close as they can be you know encompassing you know with language these notions now because it's language and thought like it's never going to be exactly correct because reality is really beyond language because language is dualistic. Uh, 
and thought is ultimately dualistic. But yeah, you could take, you know, the very beginning teachings on sutra and you if you examine them and contemplate them in their most expansive way you would have the entirety of the path and the same if you took the highest level of teaching in Dzogchen and look at that you would understand that it's not possible to embody that sort of full realization without also embodying what is being taught at the sutric level at the very basic level in terms of virtuous behavior it doesn't necessarily mean when you see that person acting in the world that you're going to think it's virtuous because you may not have that realization but the path itself there's it's all connected all of these things are connected and and one little part of it will lead you to the entirety just like a hologram the idea of merit really is connected with this idea of virtuous behavior because um we have this notion that just like we can accumulate in practice with mantra we can also accumulate through virtuous conduct so like aristotle tried to express you make virtue a habit and then it's possible to accumulate merit which will aid one in progressing on the path now whether that's some sort of magical accumulation that is somehow kept track of somewhere i don't think so i think it's the idea that when you do good you're aware of it it makes you feel good and virtue is like what would you call it like an eternal spring you know it's constantly flowing forth um you can never exhaust virtue and it has the effect of making us feel noble ennobled and that feeling is necessary in order to progress on the path we have to recognize that we are noble beings that we have good intentions that we're trying to benefit ourselves and everyone else by doing this and we have faith that that is actually what's going on so it, it it's like a positive feedback loop where you do good and you see good and you feel good and more goodness comes your way and that's how it works in my experience virtuous acts uh, which are not always recognized as such socially sculpt us into better practitioners certainly and and it's really making those acts a habit that's that's where it really works if we just do it occasionally we're not going to see the benefit of it all the time but if we are working to do it always then we'll feel it no doubt 
It would be a true righteousness. I like that phrase. One of the big themes of the book is um, bringing uh, Western framing to some of these concepts. And in so doing, you, uh, you draw on a number of very interesting Western scholars who've approached this stuff. Um, one of them is um, Uspensky. You quote from The Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution. Um, his books were sort of very interesting and maybe, you know, all the rage <laughs> at a certain point in the 20th century. How did you come across Uspensky's work? And do you think he's still significant? Yeah, I, I mean, I came across it because I was sort of looking into Gurdjieff and trying to understand what he was doing and what he was teaching and how he was teaching. So Ospensky is a good entree into that because he writes well and lucidly, and I think it's easy to follow his arguments. So the first book I read was The Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution, and I found it to be a really clear explanation of, you know, what is the problem? Why do you need a spiritual school? How does that function? And what does it do? And I felt like he really nailed it in that. And so... Yeah, so I guess what I would say is Alspensky is really good in terms of describing what the problem is, what the solution is, and why all of that is necessary. But he doesn't give you the methods, really, and he can't tell you how to do that or be that. Um, so there are limitations in terms of his work. But I, I think it's really beneficial in terms of like, you know, why should I be concerned about a spiritual path? What does it do? How does it function? Why do I need that? Can I grow as a person without it? You know, like all of these are really good questions. And I think questions that are important and useful if someone's going to approach this work because um i don't think anybody should enter the spiritual path without deeply considering what they're doing and why i know it, it seems like there's it has an allure to it um, and i think on some level that's because everyone longs to know you know meaningfulness ultimate meaningfulness and they perceive on some level that they don't and it hurts and it feels like a tremendous lack and a like we should know or be something but we just really don't feel it and we're not it but but we intuit on some level that we should be and that some of us it haunts us and we don't have, feel like we don't really even have a choice in the matter. And for those people, they should definitely look into this. But for people who don't feel the deep 
meaning like lack of meaning and yeah it doesn't necessarily make a, a difference and they don't need a spiritual path and they may be happy perfectly happy without it and that's fine that is perfectly good so ospensky i think is really good at the beginning of the path or to examine motivations and requirements and and what is actually being done and why so it it's beneficial i think to to have that and i think because he studied with gurdjieff who i think as far as i'm aware really is one of the few who tried to bring a more complete esoteric spirituality to western students um, in a form that they could appreciate and learn and and so i guess in a in a sense i'm i'm trying to do something similar with this book making something a spiritual path that is and has been somewhat shrouded in a specific cultural envelope and we're not saying get rid of that no not at all but what we're saying is you can understand what it's saying to you by looking at the words and the ideas of of western mystics because ultimately divinity is divinity and human beings are human beings so the culture doesn't have to dictate the way that we approach this i guess is what i'm ultimately getting at we can approach this in a way that we're familiar with with teachers and ideas that speak to us and we don't have to translate them through a cultural lens to something that makes sense because to me too much gets lost in that translation it's just too much gets lost and this is why when i still today read many dharma books they're beautiful and the ideas that they're conveying are sublime but the language the way it's presented has a certain formality and uptightness that i that i just wanted to provide a different way to kind of look at it in a way that that like as if i was writing to my younger self you know like look these ideas that are presented in this tradition are the same as ideas that you already know from judaism christianity uh and there's no reason that we can't understand them from that perspective the understanding is valid and mysticism mystical experience is not 
you know, fully dependent on culture. And so there, there is a way to do this. Now, I didn't decide on my own just to sort of try to recast Buddhist Tantra in Western language and Western philosophy. I was instructed to do this by my teacher and this is a way to try to broaden the appeal and the to generate more interest in this path um, amongst people who are authentically seeking something like this but maybe are again put off by the the language the the cultural iconography the attitudes and and just present it in a way that's more familiar and comfortable and allow people to consider the, what's being presented instead of the way it's being presented and to look at to look at the actual ideas and concepts and instead of the cultural trappings that they would come along with so Another guy who did something like that, who you go to a number of times in the book, is uh, the amazing Herbert Gunther. And hmm. uh, you know what? Uh, what do you appreciate most about his approach to these kinds of topics? Yeah, Gunther has a unique way of blending the this phenomenological philosophy with Vajrayana, and clearly. Gunther, I think, was a practitioner on some level. His understanding is quite, quite amazing. And I love the way that he's able to seemingly invent new words to describe what he's trying to, to tell us. In many ways, I think his analysis and descriptions of, of Vajrayana are truly astounding. They're sometimes beautiful and they're sometimes not so beautiful, but they, they, I think they allow for a much greater level of understanding because Tibetan language and, and thereby the spiritual path is, is, quite different from the way we use language. Um, it's much more actional. And, and so it re, it's kind of reinforces the notion of like, you know, there actually are not beings the way we take them to be like, we're all just process structures. Um, and phenomenology looks at the world in a similar fashion. So between the phen phenomenology and Gunther's analysis of Tibetan language in the path, he is able to come back to us with analysis and vocabulary and a presentation that's unique in that it allows us to see what's being presented from a non-human perspective. And it actually makes it much more understandable because Vajrayana itself already says there's no beings on, on some level. 
that is all divinity. So if we can approach it as a you know process or phenomena oriented, then it does make it more understandable, I think. Um, just as an example, because you know, if you're not familiar with Gunther, what I'm saying here might be completely indecipherable. But like in one of his books, he describes reality as a hollow movement, H-O-L-O movement, like as in hologram or whole. And he, he says this, the characteristic of this hollow movement is a lighting up, which means appearance. The way we perceive appearance is as a lighting up. Now, to me, just that idea is so revolutionary and radical and true that it's astounding to me that, you know, to have that sort of simple realization like, oh, yeah, reality is just perceived as a lighting up. And that's my experience of it, too. And he's right. So to me, that's really profound and useful. And I think it allows us to understand what's being taught in a way that's far closer to the intended meaning than what we typically come away with. Spensky and Gunther are sort of part of this thing of this last hundred years of discussion of bringing East and West together. Um, and yet, you know, a, a guy like Alexander Bard would focus on the Zoroastrian influences on Zen and Padmasambhava and things like that. And there's an ancient history of East and West cross-pollinating each other, especially through those Central Asian trade routes. Um, do you feel like it has been going on all this time? And, and a lot of people just haven't noticed, or do you think it was interrupted for a while and we're trying to get back to it? What's your take on you know, the, the intercommunication of East and West over history. I think mostly it's an artificial sort of division. You know, it, it occurs through culture and politics and things. I mean, there's certainly historical events that we could point to to say like, well, this was a clear break between East and West. I mean, the schism between like the Orthodox church and the Latin Catholic church, like that seems like, the division between East and West. I think for true spiritual practitioners, they seek knowledge and teachings wherever they feel they are legitimate. And as a good example, you talked about Gunther, you mentioned Padmasambhava, Guru Rinpoche, the originator of Vajrayana. So, Gunther's book on Padmasambhava, he even speaks about how Guru Rinpoche most likely had interactions with Christian Gnostics, with Sufis, with Kabbalists probably, and took ideas from each of these perhaps. Um, his, the language that Gunther analyzes does lead to that conclusion, I think. So I think on some level, there's always been a sort of cross-cultural communication, an ongoing dialogue. 
within certain people where different traditions and cultures and religions and would meet within an individual and they would take what worked and leave what didn't and this is how we get new traditions and new ideas and new practices um but ultimately nothing's really new right it's it's all just rediscovery or learning from another source or bringing something into oneself working with it and then expressing it in maybe a slightly different way syncretism is sometimes thought of as a dirty word in in esoteric tradition but my experience and what i've learned and seen is that there's no such thing as a non-syncretic tradition um, just like there is no discontinuity in reality itself and so i would never say that you know any tradition is not important or not worthwhile because for somebody it is and they all serve a purpose maybe not for each of us individually but for somebody so i on one level i really feel like the division between east and west is completely artificial and made up but the real division that does exist and is often overlooked and not considered is the division between traditions that exalt wisdom and traditions that only pay it lip service. When I say traditions that exalt wisdom, I mean traditions where you actually have living enlightened teachers. And then there's other esoteric traditions where there's never ever been a living enlightened teacher and there may never be one and i'm not saying that those are bad or wrong or not worth it because they are just like i said before they're still beneficial to someone they've been beneficial to me in the past and they'll be beneficial to other people today and others to come in the future but though that division is real because schools that exalt wisdom and honor wisdom and try to produce enlightened beings are different than schools that don't have that and can't do that that's to me that's the real divide wisdom is a powerful word that's often difficult to define you know if i try to think of it uh, i think of sort of three different kinds you know there's the worldly wisdom of just how to get things done, you know, skills and science and knowledge, how do things work? And then there's uh, a subtler kind of wisdom about how do I access different feelings? How do I work with different energies? How do I operate in a broader um, field of games, <laughs> let's say? And then there's this kind of radical notion that wisdom is that you don't even really exist, that the ultimate satisfaction is 
just prior to any attempt you could make to get satisfied that there is a total upheaval in our assumptions about reality. Like um, when you say wisdom in terms of this divide in these traditions, are you thinking of one of those? Are you thinking of something else? What, what does the word wisdom signify for you? Well, to me, it signifies, first of all, the non-dual state. So like I said prior, there's no subject-object dichotomy. There's perceiving, but there's really no perceiver in terms of a self. There's certainly a, a body-mind that's perceiving, but, but what's, what's at the heart of that, right? Like the body-mind perceives, but, but what's doing the perceiving, right? And then, so perceiving is definitely going on, but then, okay, what is being perceived? Well, that also is empty and not self-existent in any way, shape, or form. So, so that's sort of my definition of what wisdom is, but it definitely encompasses everything you mentioned, like the skillful means or the working with energies. And they're not exclusive or in any way conflicting because what happens based on my experience is when one is the non-dual state, one has the skillful means to accomplish and knows how to work with the energies that arise. And there's no like struggle to figure it out or how do I do it? Just is like, just happens because there's, there's no perceiver. There's no one doing it right? It's just the divine, the divine intelligence, whatever you want to call it. Like, and I, and I think for people who haven't had that, you can still sort of know what I'm referring to here, because um, a lot of people do have this experience of being sort of in the zone or the flow state or whatever catchy you know, business term you want to apply to it. But that's in those moments when you lose yourself in what you're doing so deeply that it's like you just disappear. That's, that's like on the road to what I'm discussing here. That's not actually really different. Because when you're in that zone, and you've disappeared, and you're so intently focused, on not on yourself and that that's not tremendously different than what i'm just talking about so everybody can actually know what that's like and you can also know when you're in that state you know you don't have any problems right there's no problems there's no conflict there's not really thinking even happening. If you're able to like check yourself when you're in those moments, you'll find you're not thinking. There's no thought happening. So those moments are miraculous in and of themselves. And that is not tremendously different than what I'm trying to do when I do spiritual practice. 
it's just with the understanding of the this view of reality going into it so the meaning of everything becomes radically different it's not that i'm in a flow state that i'm experiencing something it's that i'm gone and perceiving is going on and there might be some bliss feelings and i'm saying something and i'm visualizing something but it's so i'm so deep into that that it's like i'm just gone there's no me anymore and it feels great because that's how it really is and when you're appreciating reality as it is there's no conflict there's no struggle there's no thought even it's beautiful and it's very healing curious about the role of forms in traditions because on the one hand we're talking about um, using western philosophical language to translate uh, some of these ideas and practices on the other hand you said there's you know every tradition emerges syncretically to some degree um, but i have to talk to rupert sheldrake tomorrow so morphic resonance and forms kind of holding themselves is on my mind a lot and one of the things lineages and traditions do is try to hold a form uh, over time over generations of practitioners how do you um is the form of the tradition once it's established syncretically is it important to keep the form or is it just as good to unpack its meanings and put them into a different arrangement is hmm. part of what gets passed on dependent upon the very shape itself that's a good question so I, i'm just going to answer this just based on my experience which is the form is important because what we're taught are they have a specific form like you have specific image of a deity that has certain qualities characteristics and you have a certain form to the practice how does the divine present itself in form that's how so yeah the form is definitely important because if we just discard it then we're not really following the teachings as they were given and then we're just making things up as we want like you know there are certain you know magical offering practices to try to change circumstances right but they have a specific form that must be followed in order to get the result and if we don't follow the form we can't be sure of the result and so it's not that there's any like forbidding of changing forms it's just that if we have a form and we use it and it works reliably it doesn't make sense to change it to something that may or may not work because like the point is not to come up with something new the point is to understand and be reality as it is not as we want it to be 
So again, like on some level, the spiritual path is ultimately about submitting ourselves to the, its form, not changing its form to submit to our preferences. The Western, if we can use that term, um, style of communication has tended to focus in a, maybe a mechanistic way. It's been right. The Western mind's been really good at understanding how mechanisms can be produced. And in trying to explain esoteric topics, there's very often this, can't you put it in a more nuts and bolts fashion for us? Right. And some of the Eastern styles, particularly in India and Tibet, uh, although often stiff because they are come to us through medieval culture, they also have this very elaborate poetic side to them where they're really comfortable with uh, superlative terms, right? And we all, this is, <laughs> this text will be called the three pearls of unsurpassed luminosity or the, <laughs> the brilliance way that overcomes all shadows, things like that. And we don't tend to name things like that in the West. Do you think that's just a cultural difference or do you think it would be useful to us to get better at, at praise, at superlatives, at uh, allowing our energy and emotion to reach up to the overwhelming apex of being more easily than it does? Well, I mean, if that, if that arising was authentic and genuine, then I think it would be wonderful. But if it's not authentic and genuine, and we did it anyway, that would just be contrived and just stupid to me. And I'm not that way naturally. It doesn't mean I couldn't become that way more over time. But I, I have to be like authentic to who I am as a being at this point. And so... I can appreciate those sort of titles, that, that sort of poetic, mythopoetic presentation. And I think it's valuable. And I think it, it, it could be important for us to try to see ourselves and our world and other beings in a more mythopoetic fashion. That is a good thing. But, but contrived behavior and imitative actions that are not really from the heart, I think just end up being like an imitation that doesn't fulfill the intent. So to me, that's the most important thing is really like, is it authentic? Is it from the heart? Is it really what you're feeling? Great. And if it's not, then try to be more authentic. And if you're, and if, you know, if you're feeling like, okay, you know, this is the, you know, the operating manual for the human body mind in such and such form, and that's your title, then if that's how you really feel about it, then that's how you should, that's what you should go with. But I think, you know, underlying your question is really like, why do they name the things this way? Why do they why do they use this sort of language and and look at the world in this manner? And it, I think it it goes back to the view, which you know all is divinity, and if all is divinity, you know how would we we name the text that's going to try to 
help beings realize that. And then some of those titles make a little more sense. <laughs> They're very lovely. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I appreciate the call to authenticity. And I'm also, you know, aware in myself of the reluctance to let my heart go that far in praising reality. Yes. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. Uh, I guess, you know, a little bit like that, one of the things that has tended to categorize Asian and Euro-American approaches is there's a little bit more of a, seems like, psychotherapeutic angle to this Western style. You know, not just since Freud, but, you know, right back to the Old Testament, there are tales of people in passionate, emotional, dynamic dialogue with God or the ground of being and trying to work through all their human responses to that and clean up that pathway. Like, how do you, uh, you know, whether it's the ground of being or God or the view itself or reality, like, how useful is it to try to find and work through the emotions that we have compressed in us about how we relate to that other side of reality? I think it's crucial. Like if we don't do that work, I don't know how we could ever relax into reality if we were able to, because a lot of what spiritual practice is, is becoming comfortable and relaxed in situations where you normally would never feel relaxed or comfortable like death for instance i mean that's the ultimate one what your spiritual practice is ultimately designed so you can relax and be comfortable in the moment you're dying so that's ultimately what we practice for but in doing so we can become comfortable and relaxed in many circumstances that we would never normally feel that way um and so that's really crucial to work through but i i do say that psychologizing too much is not always helpful because it kind of it discounts the view for one thing so if you're psychologizing you're already in a state of self-concern and you've already admitted that you don't see the world as only divinity, that you see yourself as a subject in a world of objects and things and other beings, and you're strategizing and trying to figure out how to make it work, and you can't really ultimately. So it's unworkable. And so I think psychologizing from that perspective is not that helpful. However, it can be useful in understanding what we're thinking, what we're feeling, why we're feeling and thinking it. I think that the trick must be, how do I understand those things and hold the view of divinity all at the same time? That's really the trick because it can be done, but it takes practice. I remember correctly, there's a little bit of the book devoted to um, mathematics and logic in the sense of, you know, the set of humans is included within the set of divinity or something like that. Was that just fun for you to include? Or was there a reason you felt it was important to touch in on that? 
Well, that, I mean, that's something my teacher talks about a lot is this idea of using mathematical set theory to understand the relationship between ourselves and the divine. Because as you mentioned with this psychologization approach, what some people tend to do is they say, well, there is, there's no divine and, and there's, and these deities, like they don't really exist. They're just aspects of my own mind. And then, so according to the mathematical set theory, you would describe that as you're the large set and divinity is a smaller set that exists within you, but that can't be right. I mean, it just can't be because all you have to do is open your eyes and look around. Did you create all of this? No. So, <laughs> so that's not valid. So we say, you know, that reality is the divine as the all encompassing set. And then we are a smaller set that exists within the divinity. And in between divinity and us is a middle set that would be deities, gods, you know, and then it, it is a little confusing, though, because then you have to also look at, you know, in tantric and practice, you have protector deities. And these are fearsome and um, sometimes frightening embodiments of divinity. And in many cases, we're taught that that these protectors are aspects of our mind. One of the ways my teacher likes to also describe it during these sorts of talks is you say, if you think you're real, then certainly, you know, these other, these deities are certainly real. Um, but if you see yourself as not real and that's your actual experience, then your experience of deities and divinity is also going to be different because there is no discontinuity in reality. One way you could describe this also in sort of a mathematical language is self-same across scale. Like the human mind and the human being our culture, the world itself, like these are not different things in a sense. So yeah, the, so the mathematical ideas definitely are helpful in understanding this. Another one I think I mentioned in the book is this idea of vectoral, a vector, which is if you travel along in a certain direction for a certain amount of time, there's a momentum or inertia developed, which they call that a vector. And so in spiritual life, you know, the vector of your behaviors and your practice and your thoughts all have to be congruent going in the same direction where it won't work. You know, you can't hold the view that all is divinity and then be a you know, grasping, self-concerned, addicted, you know, person. It's just, that can't work. They're totally opposite. I find something enchanting about the 
the transformational and poetic possibilities of mathematics. And I know that a lot of people suffer from you know, malnourished mathematical education. So it's very often hard for people to even grasp what's happening when math comes up. But in the history of our culture, it was huge. Like there was a point at which the saints and the philosophers and the mathematicians were very often the same people. Right. So yeah, just look at Pythagoras. Exactly. It should, math should be very compatible with Dharma. And yet the temperament of people who are interested in one or the other has tended to drift apart in the last while. I think yes and no. I mean, there's certainly examples of great thinkers who I think would be very comfortable in this discussion, like David Bohm, sure. who had talks with Krishnamurti and others. So I I think you're I think on I think what happens is there's probably a an arc where people sort of go away from spirituality and thinking about math in terms of reality and then it seems like the most advanced physicists mathematicians all have uh, an incredible appreciation for the mystery of existence and whether they call that god or divinity or the unknown or whatever i don't know but i think the more you look at the mystery of existence whether it's through spirituality or math or physics that you have to appreciate that what we're presented with is so far beyond our conventional minds that it makes us stop, pause, silence ourselves, and you know we're left in a state of awe and wonderment. That's that's my yeah. perception of it. Yeah, I think so. There's a there's so many different languages for approaching uh, something that is I don't know unintelligible and intelligible both don't quite do it. <laughs> so there's an unintelligible intelligibility that is presupposed in mathematics, presupposed in perception, presupposed in every aspect of the fact that the world is workable. But the workability that it's based on is completely workable and yet utterly mysterious. Yeah, I mean, I, Nisargadatta Maharaj once said that anything can be a path provided you're interested enough in it and pursue it deeply enough. And that the reason that's true is because there's no discontinuity in reality whatsoever. So it's not just that the path the teachings of the path are holographic all of reality is holographic so if i had the right intention and attitude and mindset i could turn plumbing into a spiritual path or drawing or cleaning i mean there's it literally could be anything I feel pretty complete. I think we're coming near the end of our talk. Um, is there anything else you'd like to get into or how do you feel? 
Um, there's a couple things I'd like to mention for sure. people who might be interested in the book. Again, it's available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. Perneus is the name. And uh, we also have a website, tanagana.com, which is our sort of little publishing company with uh, there'll be updates about future projects there. And we also have a website now called uh, nongdro.org, which this is for people who are interested in beginning these preliminary practices, but they don't yet have a teacher and they need instruction in order to be able to do them. And so this is a way that the material could be made available now, at some point, if people were truly interested, they would have to come here and receive the empowerment to do the practice, to do the practice, but that's possible now. So before, if you wanted to do these practices, you'd have to make contact with the teacher, be accepted as their student, join the Sangha, and go from there. So that that's a big commitment. It involves a lot of travel, some money, um, a time commitment, and you know, becoming like a student. It, it's a big deal, and there's a lot of commitment and different facets to that. And not everyone is ready or able to do that. So, my teacher has made these practices. It's more accessible now to people who live anywhere who may only be able to come here one time, um, but they can still receive teachings, get instruction, and do the practices and accomplish them. And that's amazing. And um, hopefully people will, will do it. Do you feel like your teacher's in a more outreaching phase because it seems like there's this book and there's these other ways of, you know, wisdom porching it, creating introductions and bridges. And I think I heard some of his poetry is coming out now. Yeah, you just is he, released. Is he reaching a, into the world more? It seems like it, it seems that, um, I mean, he, yeah, we just published a, a Book of his poetry called Juan Jui, The Dark Unlearning, that just came out yesterday. And uh, it's tr tremendous, tremendous book of poetry. And so in the past, my teacher has told me, you know, don't tell people who I am or where I am or, and that I don't take new students. And, but now I think he's fine with me telling you his name and and that he's very selective about students he's not seeking new students specifically but he is making his teachings and his work more available and accessible to people um, at this point which is wonderful it's really tremendous blessing and so I feel fortunate in that I can have a small part to play in getting this material out and available. 
because it changed my life. I mean, I'm not even the same person I was a few years ago. And I owe all that to him and the teachings and these practices. So I would feel horrible if I didn't share them and talk about it and express this because I know other people are in a similar state to what the way I was and there is a remedy. Sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) I wish the best to him and you and this work. And, uh, I really had fun reading this book. It, Thank you. It reminded me or invoked for me so many of my favorite things. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thank you. I'm glad to hear that. And it's uh it's a pleasure to see you again. This you as well. Thanks. Thank Greg. you so. Thank you. I appreciate it.